Archaeologists have discovered that ancient man had a phenomenal way of transmitting his music. It's called a 45 RPM. Now, I learned this morning how ancient it is. When I had this in my hand, I was bringing it up here, and Evan was, uh, Evan was preparing with the youth. Did you not see the youth? Was that awesome? Ah, that was great this morning. Did they do a great job? Okay. Rachel was on the piano for the first time in that context. Very, very excited about that. Very excited about the the support that we continue to give to youth. Right, Rachel? We had that discussion. Thank you. Very good. So I had this in my hand, and Evan said, Oh, that's a 45. And Keely, and I quote, because I wrote it down, said, Whatever that is. Well, young people, before you could download your songs on iTunes and put them straight into whatever handheld device there was, there was this thing called a 45. I believe this is what gave birth to the jukebox, because these would literally sit in a stack in the jukebox, and you'd pitch it poke a number and a letter, and it would pull one out and put it on a turntable, and the arm would come down, and they would play music throughout the place. How many of you remember a real jukebox? Yeah, you do, right? Okay. Yeah, and you saw these are all ancient people, kids. That's right. That's old, way, way back. Now, typically, when you would purchase a forty-five. typically there was a winning song on one side. This happens to be... Purchased for 27 cents at the consignment store in Thief River. Uh, So you can see they've really retained their value. This is Music Box Dancer. How many of you remember that song? Yeah, all right. You guys are remembering it. Good. And then on the other side, there's some other goofy song that really didn't even matter if they printed anything on that side or not, right? Because the other side was not all that good, and you didn't really listen to it, and so you just kind of let it go. You didn't really play it. Except, every once in a while, among the tens of thousands of these records that have been made... A bit of magic happened. I have one here, which I'm trying to convince Brenda to sell me. Because we have here on one side, we have... Well, what do you got for me, Paul? What do you got? All right? Let's go surfing now. How many of you remember that song? Yeah, you do, don't you? Okay. What else you got for me, Paul? Takes him a second to get it for us. It's good. It's good. Here's a point. That's good, Paul. Thank you, buddy. Thank you. That is who? Who was singing that? 
Beach Boys, without a doubt, the best summer band ever. They are in my CD player right now in my car, and they're there all summer. Without a doubt, the cool thing is, the magic that happened, is both of those songs, which were big hits, are on the same 45. It's called a two-sided winner, in that the backside and the front side are both songs worth listening to. They made it on to the chart. And uh, Lori looked it up for me. And of all the records that were pressed, the tens of thousands of those 45s that were put out, there's just over 100, like 103, that became two-sided winners, where both sides made it as big hits on the pop charts. Now, this idea of a two-sided winner, where how, whichever one you go with, it is a great song. I'd like us to use this morning as an illustration of what the author of Hebrews is saying about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's our way of illustrating a truth. Now, if you've been with us as we have been working our way through the book of Hebrews, you're aware that we celebrate... Christ fulfilling his role as high priest. We've spent a lot of time on that topic. We saw in Hebrews chapter 1, we saw his, his work of high priest. When Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, right out of the gate, we have this reference. When he had by himself purged our sins, he did that as our high priest. So we get that emphasis right there. By the time you get to 2.17, we get his title as high priest. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. We saw that too. We've seen his work. We've seen his title. And very significantly, a lot of time was spent on his classification as high priest. Because in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 6, the first reference we get is this. In quoting Psalm 110, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now that is repeated, what's in 510 is repeated in 620, 7.17, 7.21, and it is woven. You heard me say repeatedly how these truths are just woven into the text as those chapters unfold. Called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now this role that he has as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, that phrase according to the order of Melchizedek, sets him apart from the other priests that we read about in the Old Testament. We had the Mosaic Covenant. We've looked at all of this, so we're not going to go into depth, I promise. But we had the Mosaic Covenant. Under the Mosaic Covenant, you had the Aaronic priesthood. You had the tribe of Levi who were drawn. They were selected out. They were chosen to be God's special chosen tribe. And he dealt with them completely uniquely. And both Aaron and his sons and this tribe of Levi, they were the ones given the responsibilities for all that would happen with the tabernacle. Later it would become the temple when it was built in a permanent fashion. But here is how, because we saw it in piecemeal as we move through, 
Here are just some of the things that I'd like to note that sets Christ apart because he's after the order of Melchizedek as opposed to the Aaronic and Levitical operations. One, God appointed him by an oath with two immutable things, two things that can't be changed. In fact, the writer to the Hebrews said, these become an anchor for our soul in how Christ was appointed. And these two things are a better priesthood than that one with the Mosaic covenant and a better covenant. He's something different. Secondly, we saw repeatedly, we looked at it, he served a better tabernacle. The contrast between an earthly tabernacle, which is where Moses and that line of of priestly service went, was only representative of the heavenly tabernacle, and that's where Christ served, in the heavenly tabernacle. Third, he offered a better sacrifice, one that actually can bear away sin, not simply cover it. Therefore, only one sacrifice was necessary, and we talked about that. The fact that each year on the Day of Atonement, there was a covering for sins made, but the real root problem of sin had not yet been dealt with until Christ came after the order of Melchizedek, and he actually offered a sacrifice in himself that was able to take away sin, to bear it away, and as such, only needed to be offered once because it actually dealt with the root problem. The fourth thing that we note is that the way, of the, the way into the Holy of Holies was now made accessible. Because prior to this, the priests ministered in that first element of the tabernacle, but they couldn't go into the second element, into the Holy of Holies, except for the high priest once a year, cover for sin. We've been through a lot of, all of that. But the writer of the Hebrews said all of this was a parable. It was a parable. It was telling a story that the way into the Holy of Holies had not yet been made accessible until Christ, the priest after the order of Melchizedek, came. The fifth thing, a fifth thing, Christ can identify with our weaknesses. Therefore, we may boldly approach him for help in time of need. As Christ came, as he, as he took on human flesh, as he identified with us in our brokenness and he bore our sin, he, he understands how dark and burdensome and weighty this world can be. He gets it so that he calls us to come to him and he will strengthen us. And he will give grace for us to manage the things of this life that are difficult. This is all stuff that has happened already. We celebrate Christ fulfilling his high priestly role. Now, again, reviewing, as we celebrate Christ's role as high priest, we're aware of a time element. Were we not? We tried to point this out. What had been... What had been under the Old Covenant, under that first covenant, that of Moses, of Aaron, of the Levites, and what became under the New Covenant, the Second Covenant, that of Christ as high priest, were two different things. And it was constantly set forth for us, here's what had been, here's what came in with Christ. As we turn the record over, to look at the other side, if you will, for illustration purposes. As we turn the record of being the priest 
after the order of Melchizedek over. There is another time element between what Christ has done in the past as the high priest, which we already celebrate, and what he will do in the future. And that's why we say we celebrate Christ fulfilling his role as high priest and we anticipate Christ fulfilling his role as, and I'm going to use this term, as ultimate king. The ultimate king. As we were nearing the end, and how many times did I say it? So from halfway through chapter 6 through halfway through chapter 10, the entire focus is upon Jesus Christ. There's no exhortation in there at all. It's entirely doctrinal, entirely revealing to us who Christ is and what it is he has accomplished. But as we're nearing the end of that section, we read this. But in chapter 10, verse 12, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Now, that's not the only place it's referenced, that he sat down at the right hand of God. Now, notice this. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. There's that time element. Not, let's just make it clear. In terms of what he did as high priest, what he will do, what we anticipate when he comes as the ultimate king. Now, why do I call him the ultimate king? Because this reference is to that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. He just sits back, right? This is the imagery that is made for us. He sits back on his throne. And what is it that lifts his feet? His enemies. What is that picture? complete defeat, completely vanquished his enemies and has humiliated them, and he then serves as the ultimate king. So what I'd like us to think about is this. There is both a time element and a tide, a T-I-E-D element. The high priest stuff came first. I think we got that now. I've repeated that for us. That's the time element. First the high priest, later the king. But the second thing the high priest is the king. They're tied together. The time element, priestly service first, kingly service next. The tied element is it is one and the same being, one and the same person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we went through the book of Hebrews... The author has been focusing on Christ as high priest. That's why that reference repeatedly, you are a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He has been focusing on Christ as high priest, but has also been hinting that there is a second side to this record of Melchizedek, and that also is a winner. That he is going to one day have as his footstool his enemies. To understand now, we gotta, I want to go back because there's so much in this. To understand exactly why this reference to Melchizedek so repeatedly, why he's unique, I'm just going to go back briefly to Genesis chapter 14. And I'm going to give you a very brief bit of context and then 
hopefully that gives us enough to work with. And you can go back and look at it on your own. If you go, I didn't, I didn't quite get that. In Genesis chapter 14, there's, you know, king states were, were vying against king states and people were always assaulting one another. Well, Abraham's nephew Lot was caught up in one of these and he was carried off captive. So Abraham, with the help of God, and some people that he roused of his own followers went and rescued Lot. While returning from the rescue of Lot, we read in verse 18, almost out of the blue, that then Melchizedek, king of Salem, this is what it keeps referencing now, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, that is Abram, he gave him a tithe of all. Now, the, the writer to the Hebrews later references the fact that he gave him this tithe. So, so Abraham re- received the blessing from this priest of the Most High God and then gave him a tithe of that which he had gained in this victory. That's the background to this character we keep referring to as uh, Melchizedek. Now, in this role as, as this anticipated king, notice chapter 1 Verse 3, this also we were given at the very beginning, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, that's the high priestly role, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat in a place of authority at God's right hand. That's a place of authority. As we drop down to verse 8, we find the psalmist being quoted. To the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, this is directed at Christ. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. And the writer to the book of Hebrews applies that psalm directly to Jesus Christ. Throne and scepter are images of authority. It's a king who has a throne. It's a king who holds a scepter, who holds this this element that that defines his authority. In 113, we read, But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? We've already referenced that, totally vanquishing his enemies. That's what makes him the ultimate king. But here's just an interesting thought you might want to reflect on. Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. As high priest, he sat down. Why? Because the work was done. As high priest. As king, he sat down until it was time to reveal his kingdom. That time that we yet anticipate. And then Hebrews chapter 2, 
And I have to make a bit of a jump. Verse 5, For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. Early on, Christ was contrasted with the angels. For he has not put the world to come of which we speak, something in the future, something anticipated, in subjection to angels. Verse 8, jumping, you have put all things in subjection under his feet. We're getting that concept now. For in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. There's that time element there. God has determined that Christ will reign as ultimate king. As Revelation will refer to him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It isn't yet. What we see him so far, we celebrate that he, he was the sacrifice on our behalf. But he will reign at the appointed time. And then in chapter 7, we have to touch on this briefly because chapter 7, the beginning of this actually clarifies this kingship for us a little bit further. This anticipated role as the ultimate king. For this Melchizedek, we just read about him in Genesis chapter 14. He blessed Abraham, and Abraham gave him tithes. This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, that is that slaughter of the kings is referenced to him going and dis- de- delivering a lot. To whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. talks about he's just there in the, in the account. We're not given where he came from. We're not given where he went to. It's like he was always there. And that becomes this type of Christ. It becomes this thing whereby you can see how God has worked through the Son, that he was always there. Christ has always been and so the Melchizedek becomes that as this, as this high priest who remains forever. But that's the high priestly role, which we were cel- we've already celebrated. But did you pick up? There's a little bit more explanation that is here. Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Salem is the city over which he was king. Do you know what Salem ultimately became? The city of Salem became Jerusalem. You know, Salem means, you hear it today, if you hear anything from the, the Hebrew language, what do they wish one another in Hebrew? Shalom, which is peace. Jeru Shalom is what we have there. He is the king of peace because he's the king of this town of peace, as well as Melchizedek, which means king of of righteousness. So his name means king of righteousness. His role is that king of Salem means he's the king of peace in that he is a reflection, he is a type, he is an anticipation of what Christ will be. So what do we have now? We have this magnificent picture in Melchizedek 
priest after the order of Melchizedek. We understand he's carried out his high priestly role, but we also have this anticipation that as king of kings and lord of lords, he will rule in righteousness and peace from Jerusalem. And we anticipate here what is going to unfold. How magnificent is that? Let's make this last note as we're wrapping things up here, friends. The role of king and priest are typically not combined. But in Jesus, they are as inseparable as both sides of a two-sided winner. We've been studying the one side of him being a high priest. We've been celebrating that. I didn't want us to leave this text without understanding there's another side with which, we have been, with which we've been given insight that is every bit as significant. It just isn't the writer's focus. So we get these hints. We get these ideas. But both sides matter. We cannot dismiss Christ as high priest and we cannot dismiss Christ as ultimate king. We must hold them together. The sovereign who will rule over us is the servant who has saved us. I defy you to separate these two to where you only have 409 or you only have Surf and Safari. You can't do it. And so it is with who Jesus Christ is and how he has being, he's being presented to us. And I'm left with just one question that I want, I want to throw out here, friends, and we're wrapping it up. For four solid chapters, a number of chapters leading up to it, then we get this halfway through chapter 6, four solid chapters through chapter 10, we have this focus upon Jesus Christ as a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And he looked at it from so many different dimensions in so many different ways that it just, at times, quite honestly, I was kind of embarrassed at times. Because I was afraid you're thinking, didn't he just preach this message last week? Didn't he just bring the same message? When's this guy going to start getting moving us forward? Friends, we never covered the same material twice. We kept moving forward. It's the writer who is bringing this back and back and folding it back in and folding it back in, which causes me, that's a long stretch of just solid doctrine, causes me to ask the question, why was he pressing this so Why was he making it absolutely clear as to who Jesus Christ is as priest after the order of Melchizedek? He's a high priest. He's a king. He's all in one person. And this is the only answer that I have for us, friends, again, for us to reflect on. Why did he press this truth so firmly? Because when we get hold of this truth, As to who Jesus Christ is, both high priest and king, both servant and sovereign, when we get that, that they cannot be separated, when we get hold of that truth, that truth will get hold of us. And he's writing to some people who are on the verge of abandoning that truth. And so he lays it all on them to remember again who Jesus Christ is truly is. 
See, when we get that truth, this idea, this two-sided winner, king and priest, normally not put together, but high priest who actually accomplished something, only needed to offer his sacrifice of himself once, ultimate king, will come back as king of kings and lord of lords and rule in righteousness and peace from Jerusalem over the entire earth. When we get that's who he is, how about this? It calls for us first to fall down in adoration before him. It calls us when we sing these, these uh, songs of praise that, that Evan selected so well for us this morning. It calls us to lose ourselves in that worship. Think about what it is we are declaring and with our entire heart offer it to God as a pleasing sacrifice and an aroma to him because there is no one else like the Lord Jesus Christ in all of history. This truth calls for us to live for his glory. Amber, I so appreciated how you introduced what you were going to sing today. He said, I would have identified my life as complacent. And that's not where I want to live. When we understand who Jesus Christ is, the magnificence of his being, okay, tends to push the complacency aside because we recognize, man, I've got to live for this. It's the only thing worth living for. And thirdly, this calls for us to walk in faith regardless of circumstances because this whole world, friend, is out to break us. It's out to hurt us. This world system is dark. It, doesn't, it is not. It's not a friend to grace, as the song asks the question. It's not a friend to the gospel. The evil one, Jesus said, came to kill, steal, and destroy. And right now, he's in charge of this system that we live in. And sometimes it gets difficult. That one that text that went on about Callan, if any of you are following, about Callan Jorgensen. I mean, I think it was his mom who had written it, not a text. It was a, a posting. And uh, you know, she said, we didn't think we'd ever walk this kind of a journey, right? But God calls us. And I don't say this lightly because what they're going through right now, I can't fathom. That poor young boy. And the, 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 the torturous things happening to his body, which had its own issues before he ever started. But God calls us, even in those days, to trust him. And I'm looking out on a number of people here this morning. You've been through those kinds of days. You've been through those days. I've heard Peggy on more than one occasion saying sometimes, you know, sometimes in, in referencing the thing about, about things which only the Spirit can under because of our groanings and sufferings in this world, sometimes you're just so overwhelmed with pain. We just need the Spirit to come in on our behalf and lift us up and maybe even do the praying for us because we are so beaten. But we keep looking to the Savior, knowing the one who is the Savior will one day reign as the sovereign and that story will be told and will come true and we will be on the winning side when we stay connected to him. Father, thank you for the magnificence of Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, with, our, with my own stammering words, I know I've not begun to explain and, 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 and to reveal the magnificence of his being, that he is both high priest 
who offered a perfect sacrifice of his body that he might be our Savior. At the same time, he will come as our sovereign Lord. And every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to your glory. Oh, Lord, I pray that that truth will get hold of us so that we cannot let it go, so that we must live our lives with a sense of your call upon us as your people, that you've called us for eternal purposes, and we will seek to understand those, Lord. And, Father, this morning we all agree with the Jorgensen family, and we pray for Callan. We pray that your grace will abound in his life, in his body. We pray the entire family might know your presence. They might know your magnificence, that they might continue to look to you. We commit them to you in Jesus' name.